apostles, martyrs, prophets, hierarchs, righteous and just ones, who have finished your course well and have kept the faith. Seeing ye have boldness with the Savior, we pray beseech him for us, since he is good, that our souls be saved. Come, let us worship and fall down before Christ. Save us, O Son of God, who art wondrous in the saints, who sing to thee, Alleluia, Alleluia, Alleluia. Welcome to the Christian Saints Podcast, a joint production of Generative Sounds and Paradoses Pavilion. On this program, we explore the calendar of the one, holy, Catholic, and apostolic church through the lives of the saints and the remembrance of the feasts. I'm your host, James John Marks. This week, we are remembering Saint Empress Theodora, Defender of Icons, whose feast day is the 11th of February, as well as the Sunday of the Triumph of Orthodoxy. Welcome to Season 5 of the Christian Saints Podcast. It seemed to us providential, this icon-defending Saints Feast Day came the week following our wonderful conversation with Father Simeon and Nick about staring into the faces of saints, as Saint Empress Theodora was so instrumental in ensuring we have icons to stare at. We do hope you enjoyed these past two weeks of conversational episodes. We will be endeavoring to continue to find voices interested in helping us teach you all about the lives of the saints, as well as the feasts and the lessons they teach us. In the meantime, we will return to our more typical format. A major section of the liturgical calendar comprising one-fourth of the entire year is about to begin. The Paschal cycle begins with the Lenten Triodion on the Sunday of the Publican and the Pharisee, and it carries through the 40 days of Great Lent, not including the intervening Sundays. Holy Week, which is not part of the 40 days of Great Lent, Pascha itself, and then the 50 days through Pentecost, which includes the Feast of Ascension, 40 days after Pascha. Zacchaeus Sunday is just prior to the beginning of the Lenten Triodion, signaling that we are about to begin this epic journey of the faith, and it occurs this year on the 18th of February. The reasons why Pascha is not on the same date on our calendar every year, the way Christmas is, and the reason why Pascha does not fall on the same date most years as the Easter celebrations of the West are fascinating but complex and could be an entire episode of their own, which perhaps someday we will do. The point for now is the first Sunday of Lent, known as the Triumph of Orthodoxy, the other day on which St. Empress Theodora is remembered, is almost upon us. This Sunday is the day on which we remember, amongst other things, the decisions taken at the Seventh Ecumenical Council, which is the Second Council of Nicaea, which took place in the year 787. By this point in history, Rabbinic Judaism had come into its full flower. The Masoretic community was formalizing its interpretation of the Old Testament texts, which would become the basis for most of the Protestant Bibles being translated into common languages. And the religion of Islam had begun to spread not only all around the Byzantine Empire, but to erode the territory of the empire in both Northern Africa and the Levant. Both of these details are important because both of these religious groups were vehemently opposed to the use of images not only in worship, but even in decoration. 
Unlike the traditions of the Second Temple Hebraic people, which we discussed in our episodes about the Mendelian, where archaeology has found significant evidence of religious imagery, as well as the passages of the Torah describing the construction of the tabernacle. Rabbinic Judaism, largely in reaction against Christianity and its assertions of the incarnation of God in human flesh, has no pictorial religious art. Islam, with its overarching emphasis on the sovereign otherness of God and its rejection of Jesus as a divine person, also has no pictorial art, not only religiously, but in any context. And so, as the 7th century progressed into the 8th, and these two emerging religious groups had increasing amounts of interaction with Christianity, there arose, quite likely for the first time in the history of the Church, some debate about the validity, let alone the necessity, of the display and veneration of icons in liturgical life. This first came to a crisis in the year 730, when the iconoclast, that is, icon-hating or icon-smashing, Emperor Leo III banned icons and called for their destruction throughout the empire. This struggle continued until Emperor Leo IV, the grandson of Leo III, died and the rule of the empire fell to his wife Irene, who initiated the Second Council of Nicaea in the year 787, at which not only was the validity of iconography upheld, but icons and their veneration were decreed to be necessary for orthodox spiritual practice. Let us hear a portion of the decree which all the bishops at the council signed, which was delivered to Empress Irene. We, therefore, following the royal pathway and the divinely inspired authority of our Holy Fathers and the tradition of the Catholic Church, for as we all know, the Holy Spirit indwells her, define with all certitude and accuracy that just as the figure of the precious and life-giving cross, so also the venerable and holy images, as well in painting and mosaic, as of other fit materials, should be set forth in the holy churches of God and on the sacred vessels and on the vestments and on hangings and in pictures both in houses and by the wayside, to wit, the figure of our Lord and God Savior Jesus Christ, of our spotless Lady the Mother of God, of the honorable angels, of all saints and of all pious people. For by so much more frequently as they are seen in artistic representation, by so much more readily are men lifted up to the memory of their prototypes, and to a longing after them, and to these should be given due salutation and honorable reference. Not indeed that true worship of faith, which pertains alone to the divine nature, but to these as to the figure of the precious and life-giving cross, and to the book of the Gospels, and to other holy objects, incense, and lights may be offered according to ancient pious custom. For the honor which is paid to the image passes on to that which the image represents, and he who reveres the image reveres in it the subject represented. For thus the teaching of our holy fathers, that is the tradition of the Catholic Church, which from one end of the earth to the other has received the gospel, is strengthened. Thus we follow Paul, who spoke in Christ, and the whole divine apostolic company and the holy fathers, holding fast the traditions which we have received, so we sing prophetically the triumphal hymns of the church. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem! Rejoice and be glad with all your heart! The Lord has taken away from you the oppression of your adversaries. You are redeemed from the hand of your enemies. The Lord is a king in the midst of you. You shall not see evil any more. 
and peace be unto you forever. It is crucial to note at this point, Saint Empress Theodora began to reign with her husband, Theophilus, in the year 829, and there had been half a dozen rulers over the empire since Irene in those 40 years. Beginning with Emperor Leo V in the year 813, the iconoclast heresy had again taken root in the hearts of those in power. Saint Empress Theodora's own husband, Theophilus, was an iconoclast, leaving the holy woman to venerate her icons in secret. He died, still in his error, in the year 842, and their son Michael III, being barely weaned at the time, Saint Theodora ruled in name as regent, but in effect as empress, until the boy was of age. One of the first actions the holy woman took was to convene a local council in Constantinople, at which the iconoclast patriarch John the Grammarian was replaced by Methodius I, who had been imprisoned by Theophilus for being an iconodule, an image lover. This council once and for all put the decree and canons of the Seventh Ecumenical Council, held 56 years prior, into effect, and they have held unchallenged in the one holy Catholic and Apostolic Church to this day. Several lessons are available to us in this complex story of politics and theology. Some of the more obvious, albeit simple, lessons would be these. Firstly, the policy of Symphonia did not always occur in the day-to-day events of the Empire. Listeners may recall from our episode remembering St. Ambrose of Milan how, unlike pagan Rome where the emperor was also high priest, and in contrast to the notion of Caesaropapism in which the emperor was beholden only to God himself, St. Ambrose boldly established the symphonic relationship, which was eventually embodied in the emblem of the double-headed eagle, one for each of the two authorities, the emperor and the bishop. This symbol was not only prominent during the Byzantine Empire, but can still be seen on the Serbian flag to this day, as well as in certain liturgical items, such as the rugs on which bishops stand. Unfortunately, at many points in history, we find bishops who had fallen into error, creating chaos for pious emperors, as well as what we see in the period we have just examined, where several emperors became fascinated by a novel doctrine, which is foreign to the church, who create not only chaos, but in some cases mortal peril for bishops. This century of chaos from Leo III in 730 until St. Theodora in 843 is a stark reminder of what can happen when those with political power fall into demonic delusion. Looking at the political options we are faced with today, we should be quite circumspect about putting our trust in princes and sons of men whose plans perish on the day they die. Secondly, patience is a virtue. For those living during this century of chaos, life was challenging for those who sought to remain true to the faith given once to the apostles. Looking around at the state of the church today, with the schism between Moscow and Constantinople, with the war in Ukraine which has resulted from this schism, with the establishment of a competing diocese in Lithuania which threatens to escalate the conflict, with the church in Jerusalem caught between two hateful tribes hell-bent on destroying one another, it can seem nearly impossible to perceive the church as one holy, catholic, and apostolic when seeing it in the world. The church is perfect, but the members of the church, whether patriarchs, bishops, priests, emperors, 
or the members of the laity, are only as perfect as they embody the perfection of the Church. Although the perfection of the Church at any given moment may be difficult to see, the perfection of the Church underlies her story in history, which includes the Church as a whole upholding truth, casting down heresy, and disciplining those who peddle lies, obscuring the truth, and leading others astray. There are, however, more lessons for us here, of which some have significant depth. Both Empress Irene and Saint Empress Theodora played crucial roles in teaching and correcting the Church. As patriarchal as God's creation is, as patriarchal as the Church is, there are times when the life-giving, nurturing nature of the feminine is what is necessary to return us to the truth. After all, salvation came to humanity through the incarnation of the second person of the Holy Trinity, by way of the humble obedience and self-sacrifice of the Virgin Mary, the Mother of God, the most holy and venerated human person in history, who sits at the right hand of her Son in glory. In the kingdom of God, all human persons are of a common dignity, but we remain distinct and unique. We are not reduced to interchangeable parts in a mechanism. We cannot all fulfill the same function, nor are we called to do so. Rather than seeking to distort the church into a machine in which any of us can be plugged into any position without consequence, we ought to be emulating the Theotokos by humbly seeking to obey God's true call for our individual vocation. Additionally, the church affirms art. While these councils and these actions were specifically focused on liturgical art, at the core of the defense of the tradition of icons is the two-pronged understanding. On the one hand, the incarnation of God in human flesh makes it not only possible, but necessary for us to capture his likeness and the likeness of those who have taken on his likeness for our own enlightenment, while on the other hand, God's creative activity, his eternal energy, which is changelessly transforming empty chaos into something orderly and full of life, becomes our vocation to be fruitful and multiply, not just to have babies, but to participate in his creative work to transform all into the garden. The good, the beautiful, and the truth are intrinsically intertwined. Our church buildings are not four blank walls and some folding chairs. What we cherish, we decorate. It is a popular trope in our culture to decry elaborate church structures, claiming the money should be spent on the poor, echoing ironically the words of Judas the betrayer when the weeping woman washed Jesus' feet with expensive perfume and her luxurious hair. It is true, we must not neglect the vulnerable. Our salvation is through our neighbor. But is it not also true, part of how we love our neighbor is by inviting them, after we have clothed, fed, and sheltered them, to experience the beauty of God's truth? What would it say to someone who is just now escaping from the ugliness of want, neglect, and despair to come to our place of worship and find it stark and joyless? As someone who composes music almost daily and has done so for over 30 years, but who has also participated in the structured liturgical chanting of our services, as someone who has encouraged friends to paint with joy and abandon, sometimes as icons, sometimes as evocative abstract landscapes, never confusing the one with the other, this lesson, which St. Theodora preserves for us, resonates quite deeply. There is also a deep lesson in all of this about time. 
not simply our need for patience as the healing and correcting of the church takes time, but a lesson about time itself. For all the advances in science we experience today, for all the knowledge in philosophy and cosmology, we still do not have a particularly useful definition of the present. We all have an inherent sense of what it is. We're constantly experiencing it as we live our lives, but we cannot actually seem to pin it down. No matter how precise our clocks become, no matter how finely we can slice nanoseconds into even smaller increments, they aren't really the same thing as now. The human experience of time as a linear progression from the past into the future, by way of ever-changing present, is, strictly speaking, not natural. This is part of the consequences of our fallen mortal state of existence. This becomes clear if we pick at the corners even just a little bit. In some ways for us, the past is the most real aspect of time. We speak of history as an objective reality despite having zero access to an objective account of it. But our minds are full of memories, and despite knowing every time we relive them, we alter them slightly. These memories seem real to us. But the truth is, our memories are just electrochemical events in our brain. Endlessly malleable, not only at the purely physical level, but susceptible to the whim of our broken psychology. For the most part, our sense of our own past is a system of defense mechanisms that we have taught ourselves to keep us from re-experiencing pain. We also tend to believe the future is real, not so much in the sense of being concrete and predetermined, but at least in the sense of being both inevitable and largely predictable. We look at our schedule and believe we know what tomorrow will be like. One only has to look at some of the most unexpected tragedies in history to realize how deluded this sense of control is. Our sense of our own future is predominantly our past, being filtered through our as yet unresolved pain, and what actually occurs when the future becomes the present, rarely aligns with our expectations. But God exists. God is eternal, unchanging, and ever-present. God does not have this experience of the future becoming the past by way of the present. God is creating the universe, hanging on the cross, emptying Hades, feeding the 5,000, ruling in the midst of his enemies, and knocking at the door of our hearts. Always. Not in the sense of a series of moments where all those things are happening in those moments. His energies, his activity, his very being, is all of those things. Where those events touch human experience, as a now, is what the present is. When we go to the liturgy on a Sunday morning and participate in the worship of God Most High, our parish community is lifted into the heavens and becomes part of the one and only liturgy, which is eternally happening all around the chariot throne of the conquering king. When the church celebrates a feast or remembers a saint, we don't speak in the past tense. This tradition goes all the way back to the establishment of the Passover in the book of Exodus. In the 13th chapter, we read, And Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of bondage, for by strength of hand the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. This day you are to go forth in the month of Abib, and when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give to you, a land flowing with milk and honey, 
you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. And you shall tell your son on that day, It is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt, and it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes, that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this ordinance at its appointed time from year to year. Keep in mind, by the time the Hebrew people are in the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Hivites, and Jebusites, the generation to whom Moses is speaking here are all long since dead. And yet the command is to say to your son, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. All our hymns for feast days in the calendar of the church are likewise sung in the present tense. At Nativity we begin, Today the Virgin gives birth, not on this day two millennia ago, but today. Remembrance is an activity of eternity. At funerals we sing, May their memory be eternal, not in the earthly sense of, May there always be people to visit their tomb and to speak their name fondly, but in the sense of, May they be alive in God's memory, which is eternal. This is also why we celebrate the Eucharist as often as possible. Jesus commanded us to do this in remembrance, not just once, not once in a while, not to reenact his sacrifice like a pantomime, not to be morbid and wallow in his suffering, not because it is a magic trick in which we manipulate God and reality to engage in a bizarre, ritualized cannibalism, but because God's activity is eternal, unchanging, and forever touching the present moment. Any time we choose to participate in remembrance, we can be, in that moment, in the presence of the chariot throne of the conquering king, communing with him through his astonishing, self-emptying sacrifice for our sake. Let us meditate on this most deep of lessons to always be in the present. The present is where God is. He is not in our past, which is just chemicals in our brain. If we dwell there, we are separated from God. He is not in our future, which is just a projection in our mind. If we dwell there, we are separated from God. But in this moment, where we are right now, is the point where we always, endlessly, have the opportunity to wake up, turn away from our rebellious belief we are in control of ourselves, and know how best to spend our lives, and offer humble obedience to the one who conquered sin, death, and the demons for our sake. Saint Empress Theodora died in the year 867, having spent the last decade or so of her life in a monastery after her son came of age and took control of the empire. A complete copy of the Gospels, which she wrote out in her own hand, still exists. At the fall of Constantinople to the Turks in the midst of the 15th century, her relics, along with the relics of Saint Spiridon, were taken to the island of Corfu. Thank you for listening. If this podcast has been edifying for you, please subscribe, share, and consider the entire Paradosis Pavilion catalog as well as the music of Generative Sounds. 
All iconographic images used for our episodes, unless otherwise indicated, are presented by kind permission of Nicholas Pappas, who controls the distribution rights of these images. Prints of all of Nick's work can be found at St. Demetrius Press. Links for all three organizations, as well as the reference materials and passages of scripture which were featured in this episode, are provided in the episode description. Please contact us through our social media channels if you are interested in providing us with feedback or engaging us in conversation, which we would welcome. Please forgive us our shortcomings and pray for us. We will conclude this episode with the proclamation of the triumph of orthodoxy. As the prophets beheld, as the apostles have taught, as the church has received, as the teachers have dogmatized, as the universe has agreed, as grace has shone forth, as truth has revealed, as falsehood has been dissolved, as wisdom has presented, as Christ has awarded, thus we declare, thus we assert, thus we preach Christ our true God, and honor as saints in words, in writings, in thoughts, in sacrifices, in churches, in holy icons, on the one hand worshiping and reverencing Christ as God and Lord, and on the other hand honoring as true servants of the same Lord of all, and accordingly offering them veneration. This is the faith of the apostles. This is the faith of the fathers. This is the faith of the orthodox. This is the faith which has established the universe. Keep thy servants in remembrance, O Lord, since thou art good, and do thou forgive their every sin in this life, for no man is without sin, except for thee who art able to grant rest even unto those that have departed hence. Come, let us worship and fall down before Christ. Save us, O Son of God, who art wondrous in the saints, who sing to thee, Alleluia, Alleluia, Alleluia. Through the prayers of your holy fathers, O Christ our God, have mercy on us and save us. Amen. Thank you.